many social psychologists and even evolutionary biologists will argue that story is probably more important than opposable thumbs for the evolution and survival of our species, because we are the only species that we know of that can think in, plan, organize, and act in story, meaning we can create fictions in our minds and get everybody to believe in that fiction. For instance, money. Money's totally fiction. It's, it's You look at a dollar bill, and we just make up this story that it's actually worth something, but in and of itself, it's worth absolutely nothing. We are the only species that can do this. So the argument is, this is not generational. This is evolutionary. This is the way our brain thinks. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. I have a lot in common with my guest today. Like me, Park Howell is a storyteller. Like me, he helps businesses tell their stories. We tell different kinds of stories and we work with different types of clients, but at the end of the day, we come from the same school of thought when it comes to selling a business or a brand or a product. Story is everything. Park is the founder of the advertising and PR agency, Park & Company, which he launched in 1995. But these days, he's best known for his consulting firm, The Business of Story, and his podcast of the same name. His mission is to help purpose-driven businesses and challenger brands share their stories with the world. He's still affiliated with Park & Co., but with The Business of Story, he's turned himself into a multimedia mogul. He's a brand strategist, keynote speaker, storytelling coach, podcast host, and the author of a pair of books. And he has even more in the pipeline. He's also the creator of the Story Cycle System, which is best known for the ABT framework, which stands for and, but, therefore. I'll let him explain that himself after I try to stump him with my own product pitch. So not surprisingly, Park is a master storyteller, and I can't wait to let him share his own story with you. Park Howe was born in Seattle, Washington, the youngest of seven siblings. His first love was music, which would end up playing a large role in his life. Park Seattle in the 60s and 70s was very different than the one we know today. This was pre-Microsoft. It was certainly pre-Amazon. Seattle was still a sleepy logging town in the Pacific Northwest, whose biggest employer was Boeing. His father worked construction and all the Hal children put themselves through college working as laborers. As a kid, Park gravitated towards music and his first memories of writing had nothing to do with writing stories. Nope, Park got to start writing songs. My love for music came from a trip out to Minnesota to see my grandpa and grandmother when I was very small. And my grandma, Mabel, 
came over and sat down to an upright piano in their little cabin on Lake Lida up in the Detroit Lakes region of Minnesota. And she sat down and started playing the Darktown Strutters Ball. And this was, to me, she seemed really old at that time, but she was this cheery Norwegian former school teacher, former postmaster general in the little town of Shelton. And I had no idea she could play the piano. And she sat down and she just literally bounced across the keyboard playing that little honky-tonk stomp. And I remember being a little kid sitting there completely mesmerized and said, I want to be able to do that. And I told my parents, I want to be able to do that. And so a couple of years go by and they finally buy a piano in the third grade. Then I start taking piano lessons. And I just would write music just because it was fun. I'd write these little ditties and my, my piano teacher taught me how to score music and that sort of thing and write it down. And I just loved it. Growing up, it was just kind of a, a sidekick. I never played in a band. I never did any of that. I just enjoyed writing music, giving it to other people to perform. I was in the choir in high school and my choir teacher saw how much I liked writing music, and he actually put together a songwriting class, a composition class when I was a senior in high school for five of us. You know, what teacher does that? It was just so awesome. That launched me into going over to Washington State University where I studied music composition and theory and just absolutely loved it and have applied everything I've learned in that to the work I've done over the past 35 years in advertising and branding because everything is about flow and rhythm and the music I wrote was almost really more for me than anybody else because I figured it might be kind of hard to make a career at it. So I'm just going to follow something that I love to do. But it paid dividends for me because in my first career, some of the first work I did as a copywriter was writing and producing radio spots. And this is back in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, when you really could use theater of the mind and have a lot of fun in producing these spots. I found that my music composition really was helpful in everything from music selection to sometimes having to edit some of that, to writing some of the music for those spots, to sound effects. And most of my spots were pretty crazy, comedic, out there type of commercials. And I just had a blast. And that's really where my composition and theory degree helped me a great deal was in the crafting of those radio commercials. Can you give us an example of one? Do you remember <laughs> one that you wrote? Oh, gosh, yeah. I'll even send you a copy of it. You can put it up. It was for Robinette Roofing, which is, you know, just a roofing contractor. It wasn't anything glamorous here, but they were a lot of fun because they would enable me to do pretty much whatever I wanted. And so I dreamed up this thing about Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. And we pick up with Michelangelo on top of this, you know, rickety scaffolding, and he's complaining to himself. And he says, Ma says, Michael, paint the nice father's ceiling. I figure Navajo white. The man wants a fresco. So here I am, flat on my back, five stories up at the Sistine Chapel, and the roof leaks. And then in comes the priest who's hollering up from him, and you have this great echo effect going on. And he's like, oh, Michael, what's the matter with you? And he's like, Father, ever hear a Robinette roofing? a foam and coat and roof system that'll protect this old leaky church, you know, on and on and on. Finally, at the very end of it, Michael says, give him a call. Throws out the phone number. He says, call him today. And the priest says, all right, Michael, you don't have to preach. And he says, ah, look who's talking. Boom, end of spot. <laughs> so <laughs> was storytelling part of your family life? Well, that's a good question because I never really thought about it back then. But I can tell you, 
I got into creating posters. I mean, it was kind of my ad career early on. There was a book fair in the fourth grade and they were going to take the best posters designed by us fourth graders and put them up in the gym. And mine was one of the three they selected. And I thought to myself, look at that kind of tells a little bit of a story, but I wasn't thinking in the story mindset. It was just, I was always around it and working on it, never deliberately just found myself in these stories. In the seventh grade, our English teacher allowed myself and my buddy, Dan O'Boyle, and my other buddy, Paul Herrick, to take time out of English class and write a play called Ed's Bar. And we thought it was a great caper because we thought it was just our clever excuse to have to sit, you know, get out of having to sit through English class in the seventh grade at St. Brendan's. But we had to deliver and produce that play, which we did. It was a three-man play, and we had a blast doing that. So that was another introduction to story, but I really didn't think about, I'm going to be a storyteller when I grew up. And the graduation from St. Brendan's in the eighth grade, I wrote a song that was in the graduation program. And I'd never intended for that to happen, but my teacher liked it and said, why don't you play this for the class, you know, for the graduation ceremony. And then again in high school, I wrote a song for the choir, which also got performed at our big graduation in the class of 1979 at Bothell High School. And I never once thought I'm a storyteller. I never, it's just kind of what I did. And it wasn't really this appreciation for story, even though I'd been doing it my whole life until the, was it, early 2000s. And it's when technology started changing the face of advertising and marketing and how we communicate today with e-commerce and websites and social media that story started bubbling up in our careers, in our industry back then. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, duh. I mean, that's what we do is we tell these stories. And then I realized we've only been telling them intuitively. We've never told them intentionally, meaning I've never done used a framework. I never had any sort of foolproof system that I could create these advertisements around. So that's what I went in search for. What exactly is a story? How does Hollywood tell it? And how could we apply that to the work we do in our advertising, marketing, and communications world? That's kind of how it all came about. Yeah, and if you look at when you were studying public relations, and I didn't study public relations, I studied journalism, and then I went into PR, right? And so for me, it was kind of like reverse engineering, right? I was the, the one that was always being pitched a story. And then I would listen, I'm going, well, it could be a good story, but it's missing a few bits, <laughs> right? And then when I had the opportunity to make that bridge into public relations, it was like, ugh, those people that make up stuff all day long. I don't know if I want to do that, right? But it was a pretty quick transition. So for you going from studying music and public relations, and then you go into when you created Park & Company, how much experience did you have prior to establishing Park & Company? Yeah, that was 10 years from college to struggling to try to land a decent job, to working with some pretty average ad agencies, to finally launching my own. I just enjoyed the idea of commerce and creativity coming together through advertising and PR. I found that I really liked writing ads versus writing press releases. And I moved out of Seattle down to Phoenix because at that time in 1985, Seattle was in quite a recession. There were just no jobs, especially in my field. 
and moved down to Phoenix, Arizona, where it was booming primarily because of the real estate market. And within three days, I had a job as a writer for a company called Buchan and Company. And they really focused on commercial real estate. And I was just simply in my little cubicle and I would knock out press releases one after another after another. And they had a small little fledgling ad arm that needed some help with some ad copy. And so I started writing that. And I said, I much prefer writing advertising than press releases. And that was my transition then over into the ad world. Was that more cathartic for you? Was like literally composing music? No, it was more fun. Purely just more fun. Just, yeah, yeah. And I had to go do a couple media lunches with media reps, and I just didn't enjoy them. They all were a little bit snooty. I could tell they were all looking down on me as a PR hack. And it's just not, it wasn't for me, and I wasn't for it. So let's talk about Park and Company and where you created the, you call the story cycle system and that framework. What was the methodology that you created and how did that come about? Yeah, it went from complex to simplicity like everything does, right? So I started Park and Company in 1995 in Phoenix, Arizona, and had a really great first client, Forever Living Products International, who is still a client today. I still work with their leadership on communications and so forth. And we just build the agency as a traditional ad agency. We were doing a lot of TV, radio, print, outdoor, direct mail, that kind of thing, and interfacing with their PR people. But as I had mentioned too, in early 2000s to 2000 aught, you know, 2002, three, four, I realized that the way we were approaching communication simply did not work anymore, especially in creating brand strategy and how to go to market with it. That traditional media was getting, I guess, overrun by digital. And there was so much content coming out in digital that our clients' messages were getting overrun by the cacophony of communication. As I had mentioned earlier, story had just started coming out in the vernacular of the industry. And I go, what do they mean by it? And I started studying it. And I was lucky because in 2006, our son Parker went to film school at Chapman University in Orange, California. And while he was going to school there, I said, Parker, send me your textbooks since I'm paying for them. I want to know what does Hollywood teach you? What does Chapman University teach you as a storyteller to be competitive in the most competitive storytelling market in the world, L.A. and Hollywood? And that's when I started learning about the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell. He would send me video lectures. I read Blake Snyder's book, uh, Save the Cat and His 15 Beats to Story. And Donna, it was in all of that that I recognized, especially in the hero's journey, that this was this powerful framework that Hollywood knows that has been around since the beginning of storytelling. And why is it not in the business world? Why have we never been taught about it? It seemed like the perfect model to create brand story strategy. But it was too woo-woo Hollywood for business people. So I boiled it down to the 10-step story cycle system, completely inspired by the hero's journey. But now it really related to business. I was just saying, can we break that down, what the actual framework is? It was kind of an, an experiment at first. I thought, will this work? And my gut told me it would, but I didn't know if it would. 
So in boiling down the hero's journey, which for those of you, the really quick, quick download on the hero's journey is you got a protagonist that the the viewer, the reader can relate to. They're in their ordinary world. They get a call to adventure that they push back on, but they ultimately end up taking, takes them into this extraordinary world where they go and meet all kinds of characters allies and and enemies. They have to battle this dragon, which is really a metaphor for the demons inside of us. They get through it. They come back to their normal world and they return home with what Campbell would call the boon. They're leveled up. They're smarter. They're braver. There's something about them that is now a gift to all the community and the family that they come in contact with. That is the quick version of the hero's journey. Well, I looked at that and said, well, isn't that what we go through when we are buying into a brand service? And so I boiled it down to these 10 steps. Step number one is simply the backstory is, okay, what is the setting for the story? Meaning where's your brand in the world? How are you unique and different and more distinctive than your competition that your audience, your customer, your protagonist in your story is going to appreciate. That's step number one to identify that position in the marketplace. Step two is, okay, let's introduce your character. Who is at the center of your story? Who are your top three audiences? Step three then is stakes. So something has to be at stake in their life. What is it that they wish for to have emotionally and want physically to purchase in order to fulfill that emotional wish. So let's take Apple, for instance. People wish to look iconoclastic and be creative in the world. Therefore, they want to spend that premium price on Apple computers to help fulfill that wish. Step number four, then, are obstacles and antagonists. It's like, okay, so why don't they have this? What's going on in their world that you are there to uniquely help them get what they want out of life. And then you really have to push it up on step number five, where you have these forces that come in that keep them from buying what you have to sell or keep them. Maybe they don't have enough time. Maybe they don't have enough money. Maybe the competition is too extreme out there. Instead of worrying and pushing back on those forces in your life, those obstacles, Step number six, then, is really for the very first time, it's about you, the brand. Everything leading up to that has really, for the most part, been about your customer, with the exception of the backstory of step number one, understanding your position in the marketplace. The rest is all about them. Now you're starting to bring their journey together with your world in in chapter number six, and this is the mentor. This is where you define the brand archetype, your personality that you go to market with, the tone and content of the stories you are going to tell, look and feel of the brand. Then you move into chapter number seven, which is the journey with your audience. And this is where the storytelling really comes in. Because with the hero's journey, Campbell's hero's journey, it's a one and done. You have a hero in an ordinary world. They go through this extraordinary world of challenges. They return back to their ordinary world. I believe when done right, it's actually a spiral. Because as you go through the first spiral of the story cycle system, the first 10 steps, you're actually increasing engagement around your brand. You're getting your customer to first understand who you are and what you stand for in that first revolution of the story cycle system. 
then they have brand adoption. They buy into you. They are experiencing you. So you take them through the second revolution because now their perspective about you and your story has changed. You get into the third revolution when they start sharing your story with other people through word of mouth marketing. You want to take that into consideration in chapter seven, because depending on where your audience is with you and the story cycle system journey, you want to share with them appropriate stories that they can relate to, that they can make their own to get and expand that engagement that much more. When you get into steps eight, nine, and 10, you are really looking at what is the moral of the story? How do I make them feel by buying into my story? And in chapter 10 is about how do I get them to share it? Because every story is scalable, providing you are delivering on the promises you make in the first place. So what that chapter 10 is that the hero's journey doesn't have is you help them return home with a boon, but now you're asking them to share that story. How have you helped level them up through the products or services they purchase with you through this system? And then you start the cycle all over again because you have now a new audience from a different perspective appreciating what you do in the world. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Donald Burlock Jr., veteran UX designer at Amazon and author of Superhuman by Design. Donald told me that he believes everyone has a superpower, though few know how to unlock it. The people who hold on to that creativity, in my mind, it's like a kid that can hold on to imagination just a little bit longer. These are the writers the producers that we'd love to sit down and watch. And we think, how did they come up with that? They never gave up on their creative core, never gave up on their creative selves. That's how we, that's how we power through. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers, they're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell. And I share them with you every week so if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So Park, how do you guide somebody who's so close to their innovation and get them to be part of this hero's journey? I first start with the recollection that they have two audiences. They have the inner audience that totally understands and gets what they do. They can talk jargon to this inner audience. They can use acronyms. But then you have this much, much, much larger outer audience. And that's the group you really want to be talking to because this is the group that doesn't know you. This is a group that doesn't understand what you've made, nor do they really even care what you've made. All they care about is what you can make happen in their life. This is where the ABT comes into play. And this is where, you know, the larger hero's journey. But I really caution people in this day and age, don't worry about the hero's journey. It's too complex. Don't even worry about the Pixar way in telling your story. It's too complex. If you are a writer or a communicator in the sales, marketing, leadership world, you are probably not a screenwriter. And trying to understand all that theory and make it work in your world probably isn't going to work. Start with the and button, therefore, because we have found it builds muscle memory around this intuition of setup problem resolution. Now, how you apply that, say you're a founder 
And we don't really care about your code. We don't really care about the motherboards you're using or the technology. We don't care what you make. We want to know what you make happen. So take us to a point in time that you had this aha moment, that you were maybe fixing something in your world and you found that that worked so well that you could now take it to market and fix that same problem in other people's worlds. But take us to that problem. Share that conflict or that contradiction. When you don't, you end up not telling a story. You think you're telling a story. All you're telling is the exposition of that story. And you are going to and, 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 and us to boredom and to death. So when you start having to inflict conflict into your story, now you are triggering our curiosity. You are triggering our cause and effect brain. And we want to know where you're going with this. If you're a founder and you feel like you need to come in and tell me and, 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 and about all the wonderful things you do, stop. You get one and and then throw a button there. So what about generations? So I just thought in my head last night when I was thinking about this conversation, I was like, the old cliche, this is not your father's Chevrolet. But if we go from this is not your father's Chevrolet to this is my Tesla generation, does this same process stand true to the generation millennials and X, you know, the Ys and the Zs that are coming up? Well, a lot of the work that I've read on this is many social psychologists and even evolutionary biologists will argue that story is probably more important than opposable thumbs for the evolution and survival of our species, because we are the only species that we know of that can think in, plan, organize, and act in story, meaning we can create fictions in our minds and get everybody to believe in that fiction. For instance, money. Money's totally fiction. It's, it's You look at a dollar bill and we just make up this story that it's actually worth something, but in and of itself, it's worth absolutely nothing. We are the only species that can do this. So the argument is, this is not generational. This is evolutionary. This is the way our brain thinks. Here's what has happened in the branding world, the marketing world. I think the, the really great advertising did begin with stories. You saw how people told stories about how their products worked. And even some of their first sponsorship of TV shows were always wrapped around a story happening in the TV show. And then we just took off with mass media and we just started screaming features and functions with very little benefit added in. It then all became about the brand. Aren't I great? Aren't I wonderful? Don't you just want to buy from me? And as you've had these other generations outside of the baby boomers growing up, start pushing back and saying, no, polluting the earth with your product ain't cool. I'm just not buying into your hype anymore. I want to know what this actually does for me. What do you actually make happen in my world? And there's no list of features and functions that is going to sell that for you. You have to be able to connect on some sort of emotional level to get them to buy in. And the first way to do that is through the context of a story. So when a young entrepreneur is deciding to bring a product to market and or a service, when they're crafting their ever so common vision statement, should they also at the simultaneously be crafting their narrative and going through their process of crafting that narrative as well as part of the vision? Or what are those two go in alignment? Yeah, what I like to have them do. And let's try something with you and I in just a second. Here's what I would ask them to do. So you've got a product or service. I want you to ask yourself, 
who is my number one customer? If I can only have one customer, that's all the universe will give me, who are they? Write that, be as articulate as possible in writing down who that customer is. Then answer the question, what do they want in relation to what I have to offer? But what is it that they want and why is it important to them? That's your statement of agreement. But why don't they currently have it? Therefore, how can I uniquely provide it to them? So, Donna, let's do this. Let's, let's have some fun. You can totally make up a product or maybe you're working with a customer right now or maybe it's one of your products or services that you offer. Give me a product or service. It's a robotic dog to accompany kids to school to carry their books and backpacks. Okay, so it's a robotic dog that they have, it has a harness on it that kids can put their backpacks on and it walks to school with them. So they've got companionship, they might have some safety associated with it, and they have the the luxury of having this robotic dog walk their stuff. And I suppose the uniqueness of having your own robotic dog. Is that essentially what they're getting out of it? Yeah, it's connectivity, safety, and companionship. What in your mind, Donna, then is the one problem that this robotic dog is solving on behalf of the parent who is deciding to buy this dog? Well, I'm thinking about with the world that we are today, I think it's companionship. So they want this companionship, this reliable companionship. This dog has no attitude other than it loves this child and will always be there for the consistent companionship. So let's identify the parent. And the parent is going to be buying this dog for what age group of child? When is that child walking to school? I would say, oh gosh, I hate to say kindergarten because that sounds so young. But say 8 to 12. 8 to 12. Call them a middle schooler. So identifying the audience for parents of middle-aged school kids who want the companionship for their child walking to and from school. And it's important because beyond companionship, it also provides safety for their child. But they don't have that companionship because they don't have a dog or best friend that can be there for them every day. Therefore, what are we calling this animal? Spot. Spot. Robo spot. Therefore, your child can now have complete and reliable companionship to and from school every single day with the new Robo Spot. Brought to you by the fine folks at, well, yeah, da, 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 da. So, what we have done is we've identified the audience, what it is they want, and why it's important to them. In this case, companionship, walking to and from school. But they don't have it because there is not reliable companions that to and from school for any number of reasons. Because you got to feed a dog, you can't rely on your best friend to be there every day for you, and you are quite often by yourself. Therefore, you can now have reliable companionship with RoboDogs. So it's all become the singular narrative around companionship, why it's important to them, but why don't they currently have it, and therefore how you are going to give them this reliable 24-7 companionship through Robo. That's a really quick way of not talking about all the gears and the mechanisms and the lifelike nature of this dog and the paws and then how you've got eyes that move and all this stuff. It's what do you make happen? You make companionship. 
in a safe and reliable way for your child. And I'm kind of glad I wrestled with that because that's what every listener is going to do. You're going to wrestle with this as you go through it. You'll end up with more than one narrative because you're going to try to sell lots of different things in that ABT. But I want you to always boil it down to a singular narrative. And that in this case is the companionship. You can always write a separate ABT for safety and for longevity and for coolness. Each one of them gets their own ABT as you're talking about this particular product. Yeah. And what I love about the process is, and and that was fun (laughs) in life, is that we all always need to do a little bit of checks and balances and making sure that you're staring relevant, right? And things happen in the marketplace. So I think to me, the ABT is a little bit like going to the Jiffy Lube, you know, to get your car tuned up, is that it's a pretty good practice to kind of go back and look at your ABT and see if there was something maybe you, you didn't unearth or discover. I mean, is that continuous discovery something that, that you recommend as well? Or is it that might oversimplify it? No, no, not at all. In fact, I'm going to make it even a little bit more complex because instead of going to Jiffy Lube every three months to see if your car is still working properly, I want you to use the ABT every single day. I call it the storytelling dumbbell because as you curl the ABT and you can use it in everything from emails that you're already writing, start them out with an ABT. I taught this course at Arizona State University as a master's course in business storytelling. And my students who are executives from around the world would come back to me and say, oh my God, I've been using this ABT in my emails. I've cut my email writing time down by two thirds. People who receive them actually understand what I'm asking of them. And I have a built-in call to action in my therefore statement. So I say every single day, write a minimum of three emails using your ABT. The more you practice the ABT, the stronger your narrative intuition will become of the setup problem resolution, the more powerful of a communicator you will become. But it takes practice, 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 practice. It looks simple, but it's not. It just simply takes practice to do it over and over again. Can you give me one more example of using the APT in business, particularly for the visionaries that are listening to the show that are bringing something to market? So Christopher Lockhead is a very visionary marketer in Silicon Valley. And he had me on a show a couple months ago and I shared with him the ABT and he was like, no way, man, could this really be that effective? This is so cool. Well, the very next day, he sends me a screenshot of a tweet, his very first ABT, and it reads, most hashtag entrepreneurs would love to design a new category and build a billion dollar business. But there is so much startup bullshit on Twitter, it's hard to know who to listen to. Therefore, meet at David Sachs. He knows a few things and then leads a, uh, has a link to his podcast. Christopher Lockhead got 60,963 engagements in under 24 hours with that single tweet. He said the most engagements he's ever had in any social media, and it was the first time he ever used the and button, therefore. And I said, all it takes is practice. You just keep doing them and it'll totally change the way you communicate. That was Park Howe. Park is the author of two best-selling books, Brand Bewitchery and The Narrative Gem. Each introduces the ABT framework to a different type of audience. 
Grant B. Retreat teaches purpose-driven organizations how to articulate their message to amplify their impact. The Narrative Gym focuses on business communications and messaging. Both books lean heavily on, you guessed it, the power of storytelling. Park says the biggest challenge brands face right now is getting their message to resonate in a world filled with so much noise. Between social media and podcasts, traditional media and digital advertising, and pretty much everything on our mobile device, there is endless competition for our attention. And Park and I agree on this. It forces businesses to become acutely aware of the audience they are serving. The key to surviving our noisy world is to identify that singular problem you're solving for that very specific audience. Then you keep hammering that home time and time again. Don't get distracted. Otherwise, as Park says, you'll just blend in. So Ma says, Michael, paint the nice father's ceiling. I figure Navajo white. The man wants a fresco? So here I am, flat on my back, five stories up in the Sistine Chapel, and the roof leaks. Hey, Michael, what's the matter, you? Father, ever hear a Robinette Roofing? A Robinette who? Robinette Roofing. A trusted name since 74. Give him a call for free inspection and estimate. Got that number, Mr. Wise Guy? 443-1666. That's 443-1666. I got it. Peace of mind, Father. That's what Robinette Roofing offers. All right, already. You don't have to preach. <laughs> Look who's talking. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.